Today we're going to look in the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation we have the message of Christ to the seven churches of Asia Minor. And the book of Revelation was written originally in its uh, intention uh, that John the Apostle, while he was banished on the island of Patmos, was, had a vision. He had a vision of Christ and of things to come. And he was instructed by the Lord to write down the things which you see. And it was to be put in a letter format and addressed to the seven churches of Asia Minor. And so just like the letter of Paul to the Ephesians was originally intended, the audience of the church of Ephesus or the letter to the first Corinthians, the second Corinthians, the original audience intended was the church at the city of Corinth. The original audience of the book of Revelation were the seven churches of Asia Minor. And so what Jesus is saying to these churches is not just for these churches, but for all churches throughout all time. And these seven churches have different characteristics. Some of them have flaws, and some of them are uh, very good and have nothing to critique, and, and Christ commends them. Some of them are suffering great persecution. In fact, most of them are suffering great persecution, and that's the context of the book of Revelation. The context of the book of Revelation is hope is hope of no matter what you're going through, uh, and, and there's going to be times of difficulty, times of tribulation, times of persecution. That's the whole book of Revelation sort of laid out to us in pictures. Uh, but in the end, Christ wins, and in the end, his people win. And in the end, we're victorious and Satan's defeated. And that's the hope, right? That's the hope we have as Christians. We're going through difficult times, and we go through seasons where, where Christians are, are looked at and maligned and, and persecuted. And although here in America we suffer a sense of um, marginalization, we do not suffer the type of persecution that people around the world do today in countries like Nigeria or Afghanistan. And so we are, I still have great freedom here as believers. And so in this letter to the seven churches, Christ is evaluating the churches. He's evaluating the churches. And I think it's really important that we we want Christ's evaluation. We, I mean, think about it. In your place of employment, when um, you're up for promotion, you're evaluated by your supervisor. And there are certain things that they look for. Are you growing? Are you improving? Are you doing well in certain areas? Here are areas that you need to work on. And we, we look forward to those critiques and evaluations. In, in ministry, when, when uh, I'm training guys to preach, what we do is we meet afterwards and, and we have a group of guys and we kind of critique each other. Well, what did he do good? What did he do bad? What could you improve on? And that helps the preacher to do better next time. How important is the evaluation of Jesus Christ on his churches? What does Jesus think of us? What does he think of Grace and Truth Church in Hartsdale? What does he think of North Shore Baptist Church? What, what does Christ think of First Baptist Church of Manhattan? You see, in the end of the day, it doesn't matter what I think and it doesn't matter what you think. What really matters is the assessment that Christ gives. And I find it very interesting because what, as my process of thinking through this was in my mind, I, I thought of how often we look to reviews online when we want to go somewhere. And I looked up the Google reviews for First Baptist. They're very good, much like our church. And as good as those reviews are... And as much as that may be an indicator of what church to visit, the real question is, Lord, what do you think? If he were to give us a, a review, what would the stars be? 
how many stars would we get? And so we come to the church of Laodicea. It's the last of the seven churches. And it's one of the harshest critiques that Christ gives. And as much as it's harsh, laced within that is grace. The Lord loves those whom he reproves, he says to the church in Laodicea. If Christ didn't love us, he wouldn't reprove us. And I, and I center on this text today as I think of our context in the New York metro area and some of the challenges we may have. So please read with me. I'll be in the book of Revelation chapter 3 in the 14th verse. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation, I know your works, You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold, refined, in the fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and solve to anoint your eyes so that you may see those whom I love I reprove and discipline so be zealous and repent behold I stand at the door and knock and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door I will come into him and eat with him and he with me The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. And I, as I also have conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you once again for this privilege and grace that we have to come under the ministry of your word. Your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, O Lord, and it reflects to us the intentions of our soul. O Lord, I pray that as now, as we look into the Word, we will look into a mirror and see ourselves for who we are. And we ask, dear Lord, that you would examine us and that you would correct us where we need correction, encourage us where we need encouragement. I pray for my own mind, my heart, and my soul, my lips, that you carry me along and anoint me by the power of your Holy Spirit, your praise and glory in Christ's name. Amen. Now the city of Laodicea is a, um, is a major trading city in ancient Asia Minor. It's about 40 miles to the southeast of Philadelphia, not Pennsylvania, but in Asia Minor, and about 10 miles away from the city of Colossae, very close to the city of Colossae. We know that Paul Uh, sent a letter to the church in Colossae. And uh, likewise, in the book of Colossians, in chapter 4, verse 16, uh, there was a letter written to the church of Laodicea. And so the church of Laodicea had existed during the time of Paul's ministry. We don't know if Paul planted it or not. It's not written in the book of Acts. Uh, But it did exist from early in the church age and uh, was a sister church, if you will, to Colossae. They shared each other's letters. Paul said, Colossae, please share the letter I wrote to you to the, to the church of Laodicea. And likewise, read the church letter to Laodicea to yourselves. Uh, 
the letter's lost, it's not in the Bible, and that's the way the Holy Spirit intended end of the matter. But it does tell us that the church existed and had a fruitful beginning. God had planted this work, and it was a work that was established. Now, Laodicea was not any ordinary city. It was a posh cosmopolitan. The people who lived in Laodicea were very wealthy and prosperous, and that's because it was at the crossroads, an intersection of two major trade routes. Um, And here, as a result of that, um, it was a major distribution for black wool, which was a major commodity in this area, as well as purple-dyed clothing. We know that Lydia, um, who was mentioned also in the book of Acts, um, had a part in this business. Consequently, it became the banking capital of Asia Minor. There was a lot of money that flowed through Laodicea. The city was so prosperous that when there was a major earthquake in AD 60, um, Rome had offered imperial aid to rebuild the city. Laodicea said, no, we don't need, we have enough money to take care of it ourselves. In fact, they had so much money that they helped neighboring cities and villages rebuild after this great earthquake. And so we see the context here. It's a very wealthy, a very affluent area where people were well off. It also was home to one of the most famous and influential medical schools of its day. It specialized in ear, nose, and throat, our ENT, if you will, specialists of the day. Um, And they had developed and were well known for making an eye salve called Phrygian powder. And it was a ground stone mixed with water and it would be placed on the eyes and reduce inflammation and help with eyesight. And it was within here that... uh, Laodicea had one issue, though. They had one problem in spite of the great medical success, in spite of the financial success. There was one fault. The city had a bad water supply. In fact, they had no water supply, so they depended on water from outside sources. Hierapolis was one city from which hot springs flowed, and they had medicinal purposes, much like they do today. There are people who go up to Saratoga Springs, New York, and if you've never been there, they have hot springs. You can take a bath. It's very therapeutic. It heals the body. This is the same way in the ancient world. And then in Colossae, they had cold springs, and so um, the water would flow in aqueducts to Laodicea, providing water to them. And it is here that God has his people. He has a church. He has a remnant, saved by grace. And the church is established here. But what does the Lord have to say? We begin with his assessment, and that's the first point of our sermon in verse 15. He says, I know your works. You're neither hot nor cold, or cold nor hot, and would that you were either cold or hot. And so because you're lukewarm and either hot or cold, I will spew you for, or spit you from my mouth. I'll stop there for a minute. In all of these seven churches... There is normally a commendation, and there is a rebuke. In some churches, there is only commendation. But here, Christ has nothing to commend. He has not one good thing to say. This is, this is quite startling at the offset. In fact, he, he launches right in and says, I know your works. And they're lukewarm. They're tepid. They're indifferent. And I can't stomach it. Some of the translations say spew or spit. The literal translation is to vomit. 
Christ is saying, I know the works you're doing, it makes me sick. It's probably one of the worst assessments you could ever receive from the Lord. It's certainly not what I would want to hear if Christ was to evaluate me. Oh, Bob, by the way, you make me sick. And yet, this is what the Lord says. And so the question is, what does he mean by that? I mean, when we compare it with some of the other churches, he had some serious charges on the other churches, even with commendations. Uh, for instance, in, in um, Pergamum and in Ephesus, uh, Christ is, is uh, dealing with the Balaamites or the Nicolaitans who were, who were proponents of Gnosticism and false doctrine. And Christ says, I, I hate the, the works and the teachings of the Nicolaitans. And he commends Ephesians, you hate them too. And uh, uh, some had tolerated the teachings of the Balaamites. That, that wasn't happening in Laodicea. There was no issues with false doctrine here. It, it wasn't about sexual immorality. It wasn't about eating meat sacrificed to idols. He's not concerned with them losing their first love. No, the concern was that they were indifferent to Christ. And I think the hotness and the coldness is referring right back to the water issue that, Coloss that Laodicea had. You see, as that hot water flowed from Hierapolis to Laodicea, it would go from 110 degrees, which was the therapeutic temperature, and pick up sediment along the way and become lukewarm. And if you tried to drink that water, it would do nothing but make you vomit. The cold water from Colossae as it traveled down to Laodicea would also become tepid. And it wasn't good for drinking. Either way, it's showing that the problem that the city had was related and Christ related to the spirituality of the church. The church was found to be wanting. He's not talking so much about the spiritual mood of the church as hit their works. He says, I know your works. I know what you're doing. And your works are neither hot nor cold. And I think what Christ is saying here is that they neither provide refreshment, which would be cold water, nor do they provide healing for the sick portrayed through the hot water imagery from Hierapolis. Rather, they are distasteful and of no benefit to anyone. It is graphic imagery, and it is a warning to not only Laodicea, but to all of us. Simply said, Christ is too serious to take indifferently. So why were the Laodiceans lukewarm? That's Really, the issue here, how did they become in such, such a terrible spiritual state for at one time they were receiving letters from Paul and, and, and the Colossian church was sharing the letter from Paul to them and they are mentioned as a thriving church at one point. How did they get to this state? Verse 17 answers the question. The Lord says this, For you say, I am rich and I have prospered. I need nothing. You don't realize that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. They had become complacent. They become confident, overconfident, self-sufficient, self-satisfied, and just too comfortable. They had it easy. One of the disadvantages of living in a prosperous society is it dulls the spiritual light in you. 
Ironically, when you look and compare with the other churches in the seven churches of Asia Minor, they're suffering persecution. They're poor. The church of Sardis, you seem small, but you're, you seem poor, but God is with you. When you compare the church, say, in America, in the United States, to churches in other countries that are impoverished, to churches that are suffering great persecution, we got it really good. We're very comfortable. I, I kind of enjoy not having the air conditioning today. I know if some of you are saying, what? We're... Most churches in the world do not have air conditioning. We can suffer a little for the sake of Christ, can't we? You see, in their comfort and ease, they didn't realize the hardness of their own spiritual condition. They didn't realize that they were wretched and poor and blind and naked. These are all terms used metaphorically in the Bible to describe people who are not saved, right? The wretched state of the soul uh, can be described in Romans 7. Paul says, oh, wretched man that I am. As he wrestles with sin in his inner being. That to be poor means to be spiritually impoverished and to be bankrupt morally, that we have nothing to offer God. To be blind means we are in darkness and we see not the light of God. To be naked is the state we left the garden, naked and ashamed, bearing our guilt of our sin. They thought they had it together. And Christ says, you do not get terrible spiritual condition you are in. You are blinded. And I believe that they are blinded by their complacency and their comfort. This was common throughout the Bible. In fact, in the book of Amos, God rebukes Israel for a similar complacency that had blinded them to their spiritual condition. Turn with me, if you will, to the prophet Amos, chapter 6. Amos 6. We'll read verses 1 through 7. Hear what the Word of God says. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes. Pass over to Kalna and see and go there to Hamath the Great and then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? Of the, or, or, oh, you who put it far away from the disaster and bring near to the seat of violence? Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from their flock and calves from the midst of the stall who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp. And like David, invent for themselves instruments of music who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest of oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore they will now be the first of those who go into exile, and the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. This is ironic because he's speaking of Samaria, which is the capital city of the northern kingdom. He's speaking of the prosperity and wealth and success of the northern kingdom. The nations come to the seat of Israel. 
and you lay out on your ivory couches and you are very comfortable, but you don't recognize the ruin of Joseph. Joseph speaking of the whole northern kingdom. Spiritually, you guys are finished. You're ruined. And you're not grieved over it. The comforts of this life have a way of dulling our senses, our spiritual sense, to what's really going on around us. This is why a lot of the ancients deprived themselves of many of the comforts of life so they could be more in touch. Now this isn't calling us to be ascetic and just give up everything and go live in a monastery. But it's a reminder of the dangerous of pursuit of prosperity and wealth and the false security that it offers us. It's a false security. It makes us think everything's okay. But not realizing in a moment everything could come to ruin. I think this speaks into the Laodicean situation. Self-sufficiency, spiritual pride are poisonous weeds to the soul and they cause us to be lukewarm and indifferent to Christ. The church in Laodicea had become tepid in their witness. They were not guilty of heresy or compromise. They were guilty of being useless. In the same way, the church of Laodicea, while it looked attractive, offered nothing to its members. My brothers and sisters, we can be very religious, we can be committed Christians, but if we're indifferent to Christ, if we're lukewarm in our works, what good are we? This is not just an individual matter, but it has infiltrated, I believe, our cultural mindset as Americans, as New Yorkans, if that's a word. And we don't realize our spiritual condition can be sinking. Well, now that I've outlined Christ's assessment in the negative, that we see the problem that exists, what's the solution? Right? If we left it there, it would be pretty hopeless. But what does Jesus say? Those whom I love, I reprove. And he has the answer for them. In verse 18, he says, I counsel you to buy gold from me, gold refined by the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments that you may clothe yourselves, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and solve to anoint your eyes so that you may see the very things that they lacked. Jesus is saying, I offer you. I offer you white garments of righteousness to clothe you. I offer you eyesalve, true eyesalve, to open your eyes to your spiritual condition, to your, to your needs, I offer you gold, true gold. Well, here's the question. How could someone who the Lord just said is broke afford to buy gold? That's an interesting contradiction there, isn't it? Because I counsel you to buy gold from me, but I just told you you're broke. That is... Uh, an interesting concept there. Sam Storm says this, there's an obvious paradox here for how can poor people purchase a commodity as expensive as gold? You do so with the only currency that counts in God's presence, need. The coin of the realm is desperation. We don't pay him out of our resources, but our acknowledgement of the depths of our abject poverty the price that God requires is that faith in Him which humbly concedes that one has nothing with which to bargain, 
nothing with which to trade, nothing with which to make so much as a meager down payment. It's when we come to God empty-handed and realizing we have nothing to offer Him, but He offers us everything in Christ. And it's all of grace. You didn't merit it. You didn't earn it. It is a gift. You do not deserve it. I do not deserve it. It is the unmerited, unlimited grace of God. And we come to Him with the eyes of faith, our arms wide open and receive, Lord Jesus, feed me. Fill me. Take control. But it is until we recognize our need and desperation that we truly find that fillment. There's two other points that I think we need to make clear here. One is that the cure, the cure for overcoming this lukewarmness is to have a greater and renewed vision for who Christ is. Notice how Christ introduced himself in verse 14, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Now Christ introduces himself with snippets that are taken from chapter 1 when John has this revelation of the glorified Christ. It is a vision that is not of a domesticated Jesus, but of the Christ who rules the universe. Turn back two chapters to chapter 1. In verse 12, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and the midst of the lampstands are one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his chest, and the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in the furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Is that the vision we have for Christ? Do we see him high and lifted up the same way Isaiah saw him in Isaiah 6 when he said, Woe is me, I'm undone. But look at the grace again. Fear not, the Lord says, I am the first, the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades, and write therefore the things that you have seen. We must trust in the sovereignty and the preeminence of Christ. He identifies himself as the beginning of creation. The close relationship between Laodicea and Colossae cannot help to point us to Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 where we have this just enormous description of who Christ is. He is the image, verse 15, chapter 1 of Colossians. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers and authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be 
preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The first step in overcoming lukewarmness is to have a renewed vision for who Christ is. Know that he is a sovereign ruler of our life, that, that he is the supreme head of the universe, that he's the head of the church, and that we honor him as the king of our lives. Two, we need revival. We need revival. What the Laodiceans needed most was a, a refreshing, a revival. And what constitutes that? All throughout history, any history of revivals, particularly here in New York City that experienced a great one in the 19th century, is repentance. A heartbroken change of heart where people turn from their sins and turn to God. Notice it says in verse 19, those whom I love I reprove and discipline. So what? Be zealous and repent. Don't take the message and say, yeah, that's good advice. Christ doesn't give us good counsel he commands us to repent. Take what I've told you and run with it. The whole point of Christ's word is to break our hearts, to humble us, to produce godly sorrow. And godly sorrow produces repentance. Worldly sorrow produces death. And repentance is a change. It's a change of life. And that is what Christ is calling on for the Laodicean church it's to forsake their self-sufficiency, to realize their need, but to do works that are hot or cold. Do works that are either going to bring refreshing or do works that are going to bring healing. Stop with the lame motions of day-to-day -day religion. Be zealous and repent. Not just be repentant, but be zealous. Serve God with zeal. We're so afraid to be zealous today. We don't want to be called a fanatic. But true repentance is a radical commitment to Jesus Christ. And nothing less. Anyone who thinks the Christian life is anything but radical commitment has either not read their Bibles or doesn't understand the Gospel. Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me. The Christian life is one of self-denial, of death to self, and a holy pursuit of godliness. I believe that this is what the church so desperately needs today. It's what we need. And I do not sit here to lecture you. I sit here seeing my own heart and how bare I am before Christ. I need this revival just as desperately as we all do. Yesterday, I read a piece in the Jerusalem Post by Sherwin Pomeratz. The title of the piece is God Judging America. And he goes on listing all the things that have been happening in recent years from the pandemic to major weather patterns and you know, the, the political civil war in our country and all of these things. He says, are we, is God judging us? And this is a Jewish man writing from a Jewish perspective. And, and, 
And he seems to lead to the fact that maybe we are being judged. And he refers to World War II when General Patton was about to make a, a, a great incursion into Germany. And in December of 44, there was bad weather that was hampering the efforts. Now, Patton was not a man of God. If you've known anything about him historically or have watched the movie, he was quite a brash man. But he reached a point where, where he realized he couldn't move forward unless there was divine intervention. Pomerantz, and I quote him, says this, when hope eluded him, Patton, the battle-hardened cynic, asked his troops to turn to a higher force. When he later said, what he later said about people in such a quandary is noteworthy. Watch what people are cynical about, and one can often discover what they lack. Pomerantz goes on to say, maybe the time has come for everyone to bury the cynicism and look up. There's certainly no downside in doing so, while there's still every possibility that our prayers will be answered. The truth is, he called upon the chaplain of the army, and he prayed. The clouds were lifted, and Patton moved forward. We need as a nation, as a city, as a people, and it needs to begin with the people of God, a true, heartfelt, radical commitment and turning back to God. And I believe it starts here. I see the growth here and praise God. And may that spread through all our churches. May that spread through the nation. And may we lead the charge to bring our nation, to bring a people back to God. Well, let me conclude with a few words here. While it appears that... <clears throat> let me take a drink of water. While it appears that the church of Laodicea is repulsive to Christ, there is a beam of light. He loves them. And he offers them a choice. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him and he with me. Now, traditionally, this has been used, this passage has been used at evangelistic crusades, right? You've heard it. Jesus is knocking at the door. Open your heart. Let him in. Accept him as your Lord and Savior. Th that's not what's being referred to here. What's being referred to here is that the church had essentially shut Jesus out of worship. The church of Laodicea had all the markings of a Christian church, but Christ was not there. His presence was not welcome. And he's saying, listen, open the doors and let me back in and let's fellowship. Through their repentance, if they chose to repent, there is the welcome mat to Christ to be part of our church. Because on the flip side of it, when he rebukes the church of Ephesus, he says, I'll remove my lampstand if you don't repent. In other words, my presence will be withdrawn. It appears here that this presence has already been withdrawn. And Christ is saying, let me back in the doors. I think it's important to understand that Christ is calling us to intimate fellowship with him. Not just dead religion. 
John Piper comments this, the opposite of lukewarmness is the fervor you experience when you enjoy a candlelit dinner with Jesus Christ in the innermost room of your heart. And when Jesus Christ, the source of all God's creation, is dining with you in your heart, then you have all the gold, all the garments, and all the medicine in the world. Amen? And then finally, there's this promise. He says, in verse 21, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Christ's conquest came through the cross. The road to glory was through Calvary. He sits at the Father's right hand, but there was great humiliation and suffering that led to the exaltation of Christ. In the same way, Christ is saying to us, the path to glory, the path to conquer, which I grant to those who will repent, who will conquer within, conquer their flesh, conquer their sin, conquer their lukewarmness, to sit at my right hand and to rule with me. You know, that's the beauty of it. That's the promise. No matter what you see in the world today, whatever nations are, are, are wagging the dog or whatever, or, you know, Russia's saying we're going to do this and that, and America's saying we're going to do... The nations are dropping the bucket. One day, Christ is going to rule the earth. And a new heavens, a new earth, and his people will rule with him. We will be co-regents with Christ. That was the intention. God had intended man to rule the earth. We lost that in the garden. Christ claimed it back as the son of man. And when we rise from the dead, and we established ourselves in new heavens, a new earth, where sin is no more and where righteousness dwells, we will rule with Christ forever. That's the goal. That's what we work towards. My goodness, if you keep your eye on the prize, it helps you get through the hard times, doesn't it? We're all going to be princes and princesses in the kingdom of God. We're all going to rule with King Jesus. I can't imagine that. Well, I could. But my imagination is nothing compared to the reality. This is not reality. This is a temporal anomaly in our life as we pass through the world. We're just passing through. We keep our eyes on the kingdom. We will get through this. Oh, that we would take these words to our heart. What does Jesus say? He who has ears to hear. Hear what the Spirit says. Not everybody has an ear to hear. Only those who are born again. And if you're not born again, well, there's nothing you can do about that. Because it is God who gives the new birth. But I can tell you what we can do. We are commanded. If you do not know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, and if you have not entered the kingdom of God, and you hear all this, and you say, but I want to be a Christian the Bible commands us, believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Put your confidence in Him. Put your trust in Him. Don't trust in yourself and your good works. Your works are worthless. It is only the finished work of Christ who died on a cross, who absorbed and, and bore the wrath of God in our place, who satisfied the demands of the law and raised from the dead, who stands before God interceding for us. It is in Him alone, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, faith in Him alone. And that is how we are saved, by grace through faith in Christ 
alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you do love and reprove us. Lord, if there's any parts of our hearts where we feel too complacent or too comfortable or too self-sufficient, I pray that you'd shake us, help us to see our desperate need for you, and that we would dine in our hearts with you in fellowship with you, realizing to you are the true answer to all our needs and that you satisfy completely. Lord Jesus, bless this word to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.